that our speaker this evening is an old friend and indeed an old friend to the Friends of the Book Arts Press and uh, almost to Rare Book School as well. Ellen Dunlap had signed up for a course in Rare Book School in 1983 uh, in early printed books, which she had to uh, withdraw from because she was appointed the director of the Rosenbach Museum and Library in Philadelphia and had work to do. She described that work in a most amusing and useful lecture a couple of years ago here in a December lecture to the Friends of the Book Arts Press. It is a great pleasure to have her coming back to speak on approximately the same subject with an even better title than the one she had last time. I'm sure you'll all agree. Ellen Dunlap. Thanks. Terry called me some weeks ago and asked me to come up with a title for this talk in fairly short order. We had agreed that my remarks would serve as a complement to Sam Stride and Marilee Taylor's course on successful strategies, and that I would provide in some way a case study in planning and fundraising from the perspective of an institution quite different from Brown in age, in scope, scale, mission, and style. The John Hay and the Rosenbach are alike in that we are both libraries which are tapping support from government and the private sector in an effort to advance our facilities and our programs. We differ in our needs and, to some degree, in our methods of meeting those needs, but we are both fighting for public support in a world where institutions, commercial and not-for-profit, are all going after the same dollars. To play this game successfully, to attract public attention and to gain the hearts, minds, and pocketbooks of our constituents, we must each set our individual institutions apart from the competition. Seeing how well television shows succeed at that is of special interest to me, for I am also the mother of an almost five-year-old who is strongly under the influence of TV. When I get home for supper, she is usually watching Wheel of Fortune, the most successful game show in the history of the idiot box. Have you ever seen it? It's on three times a day in most television markets. <laughs> Wheel of Fortune is a straightforward game based on the word puzzles that we called hangman as a child. Contestants try to complete a title or a phrase, guessing just one letter at a time, and a spin of the Wheel of Fortune determines the dollar value of the letter. If he manages to avoid hitting bankrupt and guesses the puzzle correctly, the contestant gets to spend the money he's racked up, letter by letter, on a bunch of prizes. All this is overseen by a nice enough guy, Pat Sajak, and a letter-turner hostess lady, a vacuous blonde introduced every time as the lovely Vanna White. She's become quite a celebrity, I understand. People name their kids after her. And in a new housing development in California, they have streets named Vanna Court and Sajak Avenue. I'm certain that the TV market analysts know exactly why this show is so wildly popular and that strategic planners at the networks are all busily establishing goals and objectives for other game shows to replicate its success. I can only guess why it works. They give away a lot of money. Winning $20,000 in just one 30-minute appearance is not at all uncommon. 
Also, it is incredibly easy to guess the puzzle. <laughs> but it's also very easy to lose everything by just a bad turn of the wheel. And to win the big car at the bonus round at the end of the show, the contestant usually has only to follow the well-tried formula. Pick the five most frequently appearing consonants, no mystery for any good Scrabble player, and the ever-popular vowel, E. The lesson I hope my daughter gleans from all of it, if any can be, is to proceed through a task logically, but keep your imagination in gear. Don't be too disappointed when fate takes, takes away everything that you've already won. And for God's sake, don't pick a free car. We can't afford the gas to operate. So that's the title I went with. It conveys the spirit of what I'm going to be talking about, and it certainly sets my talk apart from the other titles on Terry's summer lecture schedule. And distinguishing yourself from the competition is one of the basic tenets of marketing. Come to think of it, it would have been appropriate to borrow a title from a television show when I spoke from this same podium in 1984. My text that evening was straight out of a third-rate soap opera. A young girl uprooted from the never-never land of her native Texas, chosen to be the director of an independent institution in a financial, administrative, and professional stew, dealing with boards, budgets, and begging for the first time. My title that night was one year in, Reflections of a New Director, but it really was a sort of a Days of Our Lives performance, or better still, Search for Tomorrow. I told that evening of what I had found upon my arrival at Rosenbach, administrative constipation, I called it, of my search for personal and institutional identity, and of my challenge to build an entirely new professional staff, and also of the agonizing anxiety that I had endured in the process. I could have even chosen the title, All My Children, to describe the staff I inherited. But we've come a long way from those soap operatic days. Lots of things are happening at the Rosenbach. So many, in fact, that I think my staff thinks it looks more like Looney Tunes cartoons every day. In the past three years, we have raised $1,641,000 and some change and have taken on major initiatives in every aspect of our operation. In the time I am allotted today, I want to pick just a couple of those initiatives and show what we're doing. But first, I'll set the stage. I want to underscore my message right up front. I want my remarks to show you that planning and fundraising in a small independent research library can be easy. If those involved are willing to take the risks required to make decisions, and have the courage to stick with the decisions which they have made. For planning and fundraising to be successful, you have to have three elements. A worthwhile product, a strong motivation for change, and a straightforward and efficient method of effecting that change. Let me tell you first about our product and why I think it's worthwhile. The Rosenbach Museum and Library is an independent, not-for-profit institution. Its holdings are built upon the collections of two Philadelphia brothers, Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach and Philip H. Rosenbach. From 1904 to 1953, the Rosenbachs, as I hope but will not presume that you know, were dealers in rare books, manuscripts, and the fine and decorative arts. They maintained sales offices in Philadelphia and in New York, and their legendary buying and selling activities were widely publicized on both sides of the Atlantic. 
Dr. R's best clients included such noted collectors as Henry Folger, Arthur Houghton, Henry Huntington, J. Pierpont Morgan, and Lessing Rosenwald. The Rosenbach Museum and Library was founded in 1954, following the deaths of the brothers. And since that time, the collections have increased in size by over 30%. The institution now holds more than 30,000 rare books, 270,000 manuscripts and letters, 20,000 works of art on paper, 300 paintings, 350 decorative arts objects, and for those who are interested in photography this week, I think about 750 photographs. Edwin Wolfe, never one to let the facts stand in the way of a colorful story, sums up the Rosenbach's holdings by saying, ah, it's what the doctor had and wouldn't sell and what Philip had and couldn't sell. <laughs> the collections are especially strong in the areas of Americana, British and American literature, and works of art on paper relating to book illustration. Historically, these collections have been developed by adherence to three criteria, significance, rarity, and condition. Little by little, we're trying to get research value in there as a criterion as well. And time here permits only a brief but representative sample of what we've got. Americana holdings, for instance, range from Vespucci's no Mundus Novus, 1504, to the carbon copy of the Atlantic Charter, August 1941. We also have letters by Cortez and Pizarro, the only recorded copy of the first printing of Yankee Doodle, one of three copies of the base psalm book still in the original boards, but just barely in the original boards. Uh, more than 100 letters by Washington, and almost as many by Franklin, Adams, Jefferson, et al. The document proposing the 13th Amendment is there, and an extensive collection of other Civil War letters and manuscripts, including Grant's draft telegram announcing Lee's surrender. Among the items in the literary collections are two manuscript texts of the Canterbury Tales, the finest copy known of the first edition of Don Quixote and three documents in Cervantes' hand, a major Defoe collection including the rare first issue of Robinson Crusoe, first editions and manuscripts of Milton, Gray, Boswell, Burns, Scott, Wordsworth, Lamb, Keats, and Shelley, an outstanding collection of Dickens including most of what survives of the manuscripts of Pickwick Papers and Nicholas Nickleby. Our Lewis Carroll collection contains more than 600 letters and his early drawings, a copy of the suppressed first edition of Alice, which he kept for his own use, and his rarest photographs. We also hold the original manuscripts of Dylan Thomas's Under Milkwood, Stoker's Dracula, Joyce's Ulysses, and the first two-thirds of Joseph Conrad's manuscript writings, including Lord Jim. But the largest collection in the literary canon is the uniquely important collection of the manuscript writings and working library of Marianne Moore, including her extensive correspondence with the modern literary luminaries, Pound, Eliot, Williams, Stevens, Cummings, Bishop, and others. Among our collections of original book illustrations, we hold medieval illuminations, drawings by the great 18th century French masters such as Fragonard, Le Prince, and Gravelot, pencil drawings, watercolors, and books by William Blake, drawings by Rowlandson, Cruikshank, Thackeray, Tenniel's drawings for Alice and for through, for through the Looking Glass, and the extensive archive and working sketches, finished drawings of Maurice Sendak, including the modern classics Where the Wild Things Are, In the Night Kitchen, and Outside Over There. Underpinning all these collections, we have the Rosenbach Company archives themselves, documenting American dealing and collecting in its heyday. 
The Rosenbach collections are housed in the brothers' elegantly appointed 19th century townhouse home, located on Philadelphia's most, one of Philadelphia's most exclusive center city residential blocks, as if that means anything. They don't pick up our garbage these days either. The house, which is listed on the National Register of Historic Places, is protected by modern fire detection and halon extinguishing systems, automatic temperature controls, and a computerized security system. But we have intentionally attempted to preserve the residential feeling of the place. A reader coming to study at the Rosenbach, for instance, might join the staff in the kitchen for the morning cup of coffee or have his lunch in the garden. But one might think we've carried this personal attention business a little too far. Ours is the only research facility that I know of where a reader has to call on the library intercom to get a staff member to escort him back downstairs to the bathroom. That intimate residential setting and the emphasis on personal attention and service is the Rosenbach's hallmark, our cachet. At a time when a great many of the private collections have been subsumed into larger museums and libraries and are available only to research scholars, the Rosenbach actively encouraged visits by a broader audience as well. Here visitors are welcomed into this private world, personal world, where great collectors lived among their collections. In most special collections libraries, the general public, walking in unannounced, is tolerated but not exactly catered to. Exhibitions may be installed for their edification and amusement, but the unwashed are usually kept at arm's length, separated from the real work of the library by a glass wall or a decorative grating. At Rosenbach, however, we actively encourage the public to come. Members of the staff and 40 trained volunteer docents are on hand five hours a day, six days a week, to greet visitors and to show them the house, the library, and the collections. More than 7,000 visitors come to the Rosenbach each year, and we are actively working to increase that number. Like other libraries and museums, we offer classes, seminars, and public programs, lectures, and readings, but they're all geared to a small, intimate audience. It's a matter of scale. We're upscale in tone, downscale in size. At this time, our staff is made up of three professional curators, one for art, one for history and bibliography, one for literature, each with a two-day-a-week curatorial assistant. One of the three curators coordinates our exhibitions, loans, and security and conservation efforts. The third, excuse me, another directs cataloging and automation efforts, and the third keeps watch over publications and public service. In setting up the administrative structure at Rosenbach, I've attempted to keep the collection and the curators in central roles, yet insulated as much as possible against the administrative drudgery, which would take them away from their collection responsibilities. All the rest of the staff, including the director and the board, are, in effect, support staff for the curators. Other members of the full-time staff include an administrative assistant who keeps the office and finances running smoothly, a program assistant who handles tours and coordinates all these docents, and a technical assistant who keeps the place clean and in reasonably working order. So that's the product that I have to sell. Now, the second thing I said one needs for success to be successful at developing a winning strategy is a strong motivation. For most of us, the motivation is simple and indeed compelling. Lack of money. No strategy, no salary. When the spell of the coffee finally got strong enough to waken the then slumber slumbering trustees at the Rosenbach, it was already 1978 
and the institution was spending twice as much as it was taking in. It was keeping its basic operations afloat by selling off collections and dipping into investment principle, a plan which could not truthfully be termed either strategic or long-range. It took five years of hard work on the part of my predecessors and uh, on the part of the now awakened board to bring the institution back to the break-even point. During that period, funds from individuals, foundations, corporations, and government agencies came to total 41% of the income. I arrived on the scene in August 1983, at the time when the Rosenbach was about to break into the black. And I'm proud to say that we've stayed there for these past three years. I quickly tumbled to the fact that in order to raise money, you have to be able to tell the prospective donor what the hell you want the money for. And that led me to my first planning efforts. But the motivation for planning is not something that I had experienced while on the staff at the Humanities Research Center at the University of Texas. Back then, no one at Texas worried about money. It just bubbled out of the ground. Notice my use of the past tense in that previous sentence. Each year, we waited for the legislature to declare how much salaries would be increased and for the regents to dole out their discretionary funds for special projects, equipment, and acquisitions. No department was asked to plan where it was going or to justify what it was doing. And even when someone did earnestly want to effect a change, it was politics, not planning, which would get him the financial and administrative support he needed. In a small, independent institution like the Rosenbach, there are no bureaucratic politics to play when you want to change things. No administrative dead wood to cut through. And, I hasten to point out, no safety net of a parent institution to catch you if you stumble. During its period of financial recovery, the 41% public support figure represented what the Rosenbach needed just to keep its head above water, to pay the light bills and to keep the doors open. But I've never been very good at treading water. I'm much more the sprint or sink type. For the current year, which just began July 1st, we project expenses of more than $550,000, an increase of 65% over last year's budget. It all, if all goes according to plan, we will also have more than $550,000 in income. 8% of it earned in admissions, exhibition fees, and publication sales. 10% in the form of membership dues and other contributions from individuals. I'll be at the door at the reception uh, uh, passing out literature. And 26% uh, from our modest investment fund. And if I do all the grant writing I'm supposed to do this year and the wheel of fortune stops on all the right spaces, 56% of that figure will come in grants from corporations, foundations, gov and government agencies. That's my motivation for planning. If I didn't have to raise money, I don't think strategic planning would hold much fascination for me at all. But that leads me to element number three in our formula for success, a straightforward and efficient method of effecting change. That's what I'm calling strategic planning. It's a process of enumerating your dreams for the future of the institution, for analyzing the impediments and opportunities which may be encountered along the road to success, of choosing the most strategic route to take and of mapping out the trip day by day, year by year, in such a way that you can monitor your progress and make certain 
as the world around you keeps changing, that you're still on the right road heading for the destination which is still right for you and your institution. Although I have a pretty good sense of direction, navigating for my own, on my own for the first time as I was, I found it comforting to have a map to follow, a plan for how to plan. And in the field of management for not-for-profits in general, and museums in particular, there is no dearth of opportunity for learning how to do strategic planning. There are workshops, there are seminars, books, articles, all readily available. It would seem that this is one area in which museums are a little ahead of libraries, but then one must remember that almost all museums are independent institutions, charting their own futures for better or worse, and that relatively few libraries are. So you learn from all these workshops that the strategic planning process can help an institution cope with an uncertain future environment. Its dual purpose is to relate an institution to its environment and to provide unity and direction to all its activities. But how does it differ from just plain old planning? Well, first, it recognizes that, many key that there are many key elements that determine the long-range destiny of an organization which occur in the outside environment. Second, strategic planners feel that long-range plans more than five years out will almost always fail because environmental conditions change rapidly and plans become obsolete. Parenthetically, I should add that in a planning document written by one of my predecessors at Rosenbach in the mid-1970s, the case for short to mid-range planning was graphically illustrated. He wrote, projections as to what will be possible 25 or 50 years from now are likely to have as much validity as the 1850 predictions that by 1950 New York City will be buried under 16 feet of horse manure. So strategic planners keep their plans in the three to five year range and never write them on stone. You never know when something like the IBM PC will come along. The third difference is that strategic planning is undertaken with an awareness that there are competitors in the field and that an individual institution will need to plan in order to be in the most advantageous position. Also unlike traditional planning, this kind of planning is primarily done from the top down rather than from the committee up. It requires leadership, but it's also an actively participatory process. Because the staff is involved in creating the plans, they will commit themselves to, to making the plans happen. And finally, instead of focusing on the nuts and bolts of everyday operations, strategic planning deals with the larger issues, the big picture. Oh, that's another TV title. I hadn't thought about that. There are as many variations on the strategic planning theme as there are workshop leaders. But the game plan I adopted ran something like this. I first asked the staff to indulge in some dreaming. What would you like the Rosenbach to be in 1990, I asked them. They were allowed to be less constrained by finances than we are in reality, but reminded to keep the dream in the realm of the humanly possible. This was a very productive exercise. It really got us thinking positively about the place, and the wish list we produced is a humbling yet inspiring document which I still keep close at hand. My formal planning, more formal planning processes next move on to an objective analysis of the institution's current streaks and weaknesses and of future trends which will impact upon it, to use that word. 
This is especially important if an institution is rather stuck in its ways and in need of some outside input. Now, I've used both of those words in the same paragraph, so I can get them out of the way. At the Rosenbach, however, we did this part in a less formal way, for we felt that the recent change in administration and professional staff had given us ample opportunity to assess, to assess what's up, W-O-T-S-U-P. It's a planning acronym for weaknesses, opportunities, threats, and strengths underlying planning. We all have our acronyms. Next, the staff and I devised a mission statement for the Rosenbach to express our basic raison d'etre, and it's very simplistic. The mission of the Rosenbach Museum and Library is to preserve and develop collections of books, manuscripts, and works of art, and to foster knowledge of art, literature, and history through these collections. The Rosenbach programs and services are designed for a wide public, from the interested layman to the advanced scholar. The next step in our strategic planning routine was to identify areas of operation as defined within that mission statement, which required improvement, and to set goals in each of those areas. Of course, a goal is a broad or general statement of desired or intended accomplishment, something that might take two to five years to bring off. But under each goal, we listed these specific objectives, purposeful, short-term, measurable steps to be achieved during the coming year. Now these objectives are updated each spring and when I draw up the annual budget for approval by the trustees, I make certain that the expenses necessary for the accomplishment of each objective are included. Then came the creative part of the process, developing strategies for accomplishing these goals and objectives. You look at this long list of things that need to be changed and the step-by-step -step tasks to be accomplished and the limited resources of dollars, time, and personnel that you have available. And you say to yourself, where can we at this point in time direct our energies so that they will do the most good? How can we make the most significant difference? But let's not get the language too lofty here. The idea is to see how many flies you can hit with one strategic swat. Some of the strategies we developed were very basic. Since the establishment of the Rosenbach in 1954, much time and energy has been devoted by staff and board alike to the question of, should we be a public museum or should we be a research library? This question was usually brought up by those of us who wanted, to, wanted us to be less of the former and more of the latter. The facts are, however, that a research library but as a research library alone, we are not enough of a heavy hitter. Our collections are too high spotty to support that much research in depth. If we took all of our wonderful library treasures out of our little house on Delancey Place and put them in a nice new building with proper humidity and a real reading room, we wouldn't have any more scholars than we do now, perhaps. And more significantly, we would lose the support and interest of a large portion of the public. And with that public interest and support, which is embodied in our role as the museum, we would lose a good deal of our financial support from corporations and government agencies. As museum, we have competed successfully support from the Institute of Museum Services, the only federal agency that I've found which gives general operating support money to institutions such as ours. We have received more than $35,000 in each of the last two years from IMS, a figure based on 10% of the operating costs from the prior year. 
We have also been successful in securing state grants available only to museums as well, as well as those for libraries, qua libraries. Our analysis of the options, therefore, led us to conclude that for the time being, it was to our advantage to be both a museum and a research library and to place the interminable discussions of either or on indefinite hold. That was our first basic strategy decision. Having decided that, however, we next looked at what the place needed most and what the staff was best equipped to offer. We decided it most appropriate, appropriate to concentrate our efforts on improving the services and reputation of the Rosenbach as a research institution. The public program side was critically important, we knew, but development of these programs, exhibitions, etc., depended on having a strong collection base. For the first time in its history, the Rosenbach now has professional curators and a professional director, all with experience outside the Rosenbach. Many of those who preceded us were homegrown experts. Bringing an outside perspective, we were able to come more easily to establish professional policies covering collection development, cataloging, conservation, and reader services and access. The curators pre prepared for the first time introductory guides to the collections for scholars, students, and interested visitors. The Rosenbach newsletter, specifically designed to bring increased national attention to the Rosenbach as a research institution, began to appear three times a year. And we made a concerted effort to increase travel funds for curators to attend scholarly conferences to see and to be seen by those in their fields. Special collections libraries and academic settings have built-in research constituencies. We don't. But we have had success in our strategies for calling the attention of area faculty and teachers to the Rosenbach as a research place. I only have time this evening to tell you about one of these efforts. Three years ago, Pittsburgh Interest bought out one of the largest banks in Philadelphia. And forgetting that Philadelphians don't like change, they changed the name from Gerard Bank to Mellon Bank. It was a big mistake. As antidote, they came up with a new slogan, the Good Neighbor Bank. And they have been more aggressive than any other bank in the city in trying to increase the visibility of cultural and community organizations, doing all of this in ways that also enhance the public's image of the bank as a corporate leader. In March 1985, when they asked us to put up an exhibition in their corporate dining and meeting facilities, a favor to them and only limited benefit to us, they also asked us what they could do in return to help. Our new curators were by this time ready and willing to talk to prospective researchers, but they were new in the community and lacked entree to many academics in the local schools. So just to get a chance to meet the academics, we asked Mellon Bank to invite a selected list of 225 modernists, our target group for this first event, to a talk and a nice reception in the Mellon Bank penthouse. They'd all been invited to the Rosenbach before, but this was something different. We invited Hugh Kenner to be our speaker at Mellon's expense, and as predicted, he was quite a draw. Among senior modernists who wanted to see an old friend who might just be the one asked to review their book in the Times, and among junior modernists, some of whom consider him a guru. We had a standing room only crowd, but before they could hear from Kenner, however, 
they heard Pat Willis, our curator of literature, announce that we had gotten a planning grant from NEH to begin work on a major Marianne Moore centennial exhibition for 1987. In describing our Moore collection holdings, she emphasized that, there, emphasized that their research value is still largely untapped. And during the reception which followed the talk, just as we had hoped, many of the researchers made appointments with Pat to come in to see the papers in the Moore collection relating to their own favorite modern artist or author. Or they mentioned the name of a graduate student they would be sending around to see us. To cap off the evening, Mellon Bank held a nice dinner, providing an opportunity for selected members of the Rosenbach board and staff to meet with the key faculty member from each of the area institutions to discuss our plans for developing resources in the modernist field. We submitted some friendships, we made several new ones, and gave the board an earful of what our constituents feel is important. We came off feeling that we were being taken seriously and we also allowed Mellon Bank to feel that they were being a good neighbor by providing the arena for such a fruitful discussion. The Vice President for Community Affairs at Mellon, who was actively involved in the dinner table conversations, will soon be getting a proposal from me for a $5,000 grant to support the Moore exhibition, now scheduled to be seen also in Chicago, Washington, and New York after it premieres at Rosenbach next year. Thinking Mellon Bank a partner in this endeavor from the very first, he can be a strong ally in seeing it through to its, its completion. Another approach to our building our academic audience is our series of colloquia for Philadelphia public school teachers, which has been extremely well received. This citywide program, called PATHS, is written up in the June issue of Museum News, the National Journal for the American Association of Museums. I recommend the article to any of you who are struggling with program offerings for public schools in your own libraries. The key objective in our plan to develop our potential as a research institution, however, is to get the collections cataloged. Except for a few of its most publicized treasures, the holdings of the Rosenbach are little known beyond its doors. Until recently, in fact, the state of the collection records made it difficult even for staff to determine what the Rosenbach had and where in the house it might be found. For instance, books in the English literature collection were cryptically arranged by the date of the author's birth. Many without any entries of any sort in the card catalog. For most of the historical and literary manuscripts, the only descriptions on file were glowing sales catalog entries written as long ago as 50 years by a young Edwin Wolfe or other employees of the Rosenbach Company and then embellished by Dr. R. himself. For more than 20 years, the Rosenbach was hindered in its attempts to make its world-class collections better known and accessible locally, nationally, and internationally because of a lack of trained staff able to devote time to cataloging and collection management tasks. Too often, the important work of cataloging and conservation had to be postponed in favor of more immediate problems. Over the past two years, we have begun to address these problems more systematically. The curators and the curatorial, assist curatorial assistants, I should have called them something else, I can't say that word tonight, have surveyed the collections of printed Americana literature and the fine press books, inventorying items as needed, identifying uncatalogued items because they're all mixed up with the cataloged items on the shelf, assigning call numbers and creating a shelf list to new inventions in the Rosenbach history, 
rehousing pamphlets for protection, and completing reports on each piece needing conservation treatment. Since we are doing pre-cataloging surveying and conservation surveying at the same time, and it's a lot easier to raise money for conservation surveying than it is for cataloging surveying, we've been able to raise more than $30,000 for this project. The Moore manuscripts came to Rosenbach in 1972. Since that time, they have been sorted out of their shopping bags and arranged and rearranged by a progression of well-meaning but untrained volunteers. Before I came to the Rosenbach, the retired cataloger from the rare book department of the Free Library of Philadelphia was asked to estimate how long it would take to properly catalog the collection, all 400 linear feet of it. His best guess, based on his working methods and experience, was that to catalog just the correspondence would take him 39 years. But in the single year just passed, by locking two industrious graduate students in what used to be Dr. R's dressing room and is now a newly constructed manuscript working area, we have properly rehoused and labeled the Marianne Moore papers and have create, created mark-based catalog descriptions to the folder level for the entire collection using an innovative microcomputer software package. Without collection and series level records in a national database to lead researchers to the Rosenbach, however, this folder level catalog to the more papers will be of limited benefit. On the art side of the house, we've inventoried the furniture and the other decorative arts pieces and marked each of them with the accession number. We've cataloged the collection of more than 3,000 Sendak drawings and produced a detailed finding guide to them. And we've published a catalog of drawings by Fragonard and Gravelot held in the Rosenbach collection. A second catalog of drawings by Jean-Baptiste Le Prince is currently being prepared under another grant and will appear in the fall when the drawings are exhibited at Rosenbach in Pittsburgh and next spring when the collection comes to the Frick here. While these steps represent great progress in organizing and describing our holdings, they do little, if anything, to let scholars, students, and visitors from outside the Rosenbach know in any detail what we have. If the Rosenbach is to reach its full potential as a research institution, it's imperative that we make inroads in our as we make these inroads into our backlogs, this information be available as quickly as possible to the greatest number of people. In analyzing our options, we concluded that the Research Libraries Group and its Arlen automated cataloging system was the best means for us to attain this goal. Our reasons. Manuscript cataloging is our first priority, and through its extensive support of the Archives and Manuscripts Control format, Arlen has demonstrated a commitment to make such primary materials available. The Rosenbach's reference collection is very small. Catalogers will need access to online files to assist in name authority work, and they will also profit by having access to the reference uh, records, two million reference records and special data files for reference, like uh, ESTC and Avery. Thirdly, Arlen provides a necessary context for our special collections materials. Since so many of our items are single outstanding items um, requiring cataloging to the item level, we profit by placing them in a larger context of institutional holdings. And as our records become part of the Arlen database and our name becomes more familiar to those searching, we hope that this will provoke people to think of the Rosenbach 
as a research resource which must be contacted. And lastly, although for the moment our primary interest is in increasing access through Arlen to our manuscript and book holdings, in the longer term we are interested in providing the same type of national database access to our prints, drawings, paintings, and other museum collections. And Arlen has, RLG has demonstrated active interest in assisting in the development of formats which would make this possible. But as all of you know, online cataloging of special collections materials is not a bargain basement operation. Our cost to catalog our manuscript holdings over the next three years with a team of one professional and two full-time assistants will be over $212,000. To secure these funds, we turned again to one of the basic tenets upon which strategic planning is based, know the competition. As you may have heard, 16 area special collections libraries in Philadelphia have formed a consortium. We are indeed competitors, but we have decided to be collaborators or co-conspirators as well. Foundations, corporations, and government agencies looking for ways to get more bang for their buck are very supportive of cooperative ventures among grantees. Having given the consortium $530,000 for the combined exhibition in 1988, the Pew Charitable Trusts suggested that they would like to hear from us as a group as to our cataloging needs as well. The Pew Trustees would like for more of the world to know of the glories that are stashed away in Philadelphia libraries and museums, and they're putting their money where their civic pride is. Cooperative planning for automation among a 16-headed thing like the consortium is complex at best. Included in our number are OCLC and RLG libraries and a few institutions who have insisted for years that a computer will never darken their doors. So three of us within the group have formed a mini consortium at Pew's invitation to take the plunge into the world of networks and to provide the leadership which we hope will result in a blueprint for future cooperative projects among the wider circle of our colleagues. Now, I'm happy to let our program officer at Pew think that this whole idea to give the three of us $569,000 for cataloging was her idea. Her, when I say that my best grant proposals are planned as if the Rosenbachs' own funds, our own precious and limited funds alone, were paying the entire cost of the projects I proposed. I have to make certain that each step we propose to take is related to those that have gone before and those that we hope will follow. And every proposal I write has to document how the project is an integral part of the Rosenbach's goals and strategic plans. In one of my earlier grant writing frenzies, I was stopped cold in my tracks momentarily when I suddenly thought, my God, what if we actually got all these grants and we had to do all this work? Now I make certain that each one is part of the overall plan. For me, fundraising is just like the Wheel of Fortune. You have to be logical but imaginative. You can't take it too personally when the most logical and imaginative proposal you've ever written gets completely shot down. And you have to be very wary of that free car that you don't have, if you don't have a place to go in it, the gas to operate, or even a place to park it. Thank you very much.